you also published a book on learning to heal or what medicine is not know you mentioned how medicine is not an exact science if you could sort of you know take us through that but what i was also interested is you know there's something known as loving kindness which you can give to yourself that i really lo- look forward to hear from you yes yeah, so um yeah i've been i've been working on the history of medicine because as i you know i was saying you know what i get from puko is you know trying to understand things that we think are of a self evident and trying to understand how they came to seem self evident so you know because i have this you know disease or crohn's disease which was defined as an autoimmune disease uh i you know once i started asking questions about it i was like wait this doesn't really make a lot of sense like uh what for so what is autoimmunity now it turns out nobody knows what autoimmunity is medicine knows that they don't know that that autoimmunity is a paradox according to the prevailing theories of immunology uh which was defined by this man named McFarlane Burnett who you know won the Nobel prize and whatever uh he defined immunology as the science of self not self differentiation that that's the that and that continues to be the basis of almost all immunological research but then autoimmunity is a paradox because what autoimmunity is is that self mistakes itself as if it were other than itself and i was like wait a second like <laughs> what what myself is mistaking myself as other than myself it's i mean that's where this idea that i was allergic to myself came from i mean that but what how could you be allergic to yourself what does that mean so i wrote a whole book uh a long book because i was like well okay first of all so that concept is paradoxical and and western scientific bioscientific medicine knows that it has these big problems that in uh western medicine bioscientific medicine immunology can't explain there's five things cancer like why why is there cancer autoimmune illnesses that nobody understands that pregnancy like why doesn't the woman's body uh reject the fetus because the fetus is other right then uh something called host versus graft disease which is like if you have transplant it's you know and now the thing that's very popular which is commensal bacteria that is we now understand that there's this entire microbiome in our guts that you know all kinds of bacteria and fungi and that live in our intestines and live on our skin and everywhere and that we have you know but how is it possible if it's self not self discrimination that actually we have more dna in what we call our bodies that isn't our dna than the dna that was from the fertilized cell that you know emerged when we were first conceived like so they they don't have answers they know they don't have answers they and they futz around like you know with my disease crohn's disease you know they you know they still they still don't know what the cause they don't know like why it occurs they don't know why it occurs to the people that it occurs they don't know why it occurs when it occurs to the people it occurs like i got sick when i was 13 some people don't get sick until they're 45 you know you had the same genes like you were born 
you know, you were conceived. That's where, you know, it's like, how did it get that, you know, you, you, you get it at 13 again. So, you know, so there was all these things that I was like, well, what, this doesn't make sense. So I wrote a whole book about, well, where did this idea of immunity come from? Like, why is that the paradigm that we use to think about health and illness? And it turns out, hey, guess what? It's, it's a new concept. It, 1883, before 1883, it didn't exist. Immunity, it, well, immunity existed. Immunity is a legal and political concept that has existed for over 2000 years. It came from ancient, it came from the Roman empire and it was a, a legal trick that Rome used as part of the way it expanded its empire. It's a very important legal concept in the development of European nation states. It was how the monarchs and churches negotiated their relative spheres of power. So in the West, like for example, like I live in New York, uh, churches don't pay taxes, they're immune from taxes, right? That people in the, in the US can take sanctuary in a church. So like around a lot of immigration struggles, you know, people who are undocumented will like take sanctuary in a church. All of that is from this ancient thing about immunity. Uh, that only at the end of the 19th century gets recruited as a biological concept to basically explain uh, why germ theory makes sense because germ theory was first introduced in the 1870s, 1880s, you know, and the idea, and this is, we, again, this is something now like mostly everywhere, you know, within the ambit of, you know, scientific medicine, people take for granted, oh, if you get an infection like COVID, like, or, or if you get, you know, any kind of, uh, and, you know, a communicable infection that, it, you know, the cause is some kind of microbe that lives in our environment and, you know, and that there are all these pathogenic, you know, bacteria and viruses and, you know, and, and this is what we take for granted. This is what causes diseases, but there's a problem, you see, because if there are all of these pathogenic, you know, microbes that are just everywhere around us and that we're susceptible to them and they can cause these diseases, why aren't we sick all the time? Like, why are we even alive, right? And so this man named Eli Metchnikoff in 1883, he was a zoologist, came up with this idea. He's like, oh, it's because or organisms have this capacity of what he called host defense, that when organisms are attacked, uh, by microbes. And, and it's very interesting. The example that was the, the one that they used was cholera. And cholera was understood to be, I mean, I call it colonial blowback. It was, uh, it was understood to come from India and travel backwards by the trade routes that Europeans used to take, you know, the resources that they were expropriating from South Asia back to Europe to sell. And on those ships, the cholera back bacillus also, you know, was traveling along. And so, and there were these huge cholera epidemics in Europe in the 19th century, a whole series of them. And they were represented, they were the way that they were talked about in the press, in politics, is these were attacks. Like Europeans were being attacked by this uh, disease that came from the East. So, Metchnikoff was like, oh, okay. So if an infectious disease is an attack and an organism is attacked, what's, the, what's its response? It defends itself, attack, defense. And so he's like, oh, okay. So there's this 
natural defensive mechanism. He looked under a microscope. He saw these white blood cells engulfing, you know, uh, a, a little, and he uh, he attacked an, an organism with a rose thorn. And they these white blood cells kind of agglomerated around it, like to create pus. Um, and he's like, oh, I attacked this starfish larva. These white blood cells, you know, came and responded to their defending. And then he called that immunity. So he said, immunity is host defense. Um, of course, that's a kind of paradox because in legal terms, if you're immune, you don't defend yourself. Like if you're immune from taxes or if you're immune, like in New York, we have a big thing where diplomats are immune from parking tickets. Like you could get a parking ticket, but you don't have to pay it. And it, you know, and everybody's like, why do they I get to pay? We have to pay the parking ticket. They don't pay a parking ticket. But uh but the whole point is that if you're immune, legally immune, you don't have to defend yourself. But biologically speaking, it's the opposite. It's like immunity is host defense. So it's a it's a kind of paradoxical concept. So I when I started with that, I was like, okay, this basic idea that underwrites all of modern medicine actually is a metaphor. And it has well-known limits and it actually doesn't really make sense. Like if we really wanted to talk about how do we live in a world with other organisms of different scales, some of which have deleterious effects on us, but other ones are benign and a lot of them turn out to be beneficial. Like if we didn't have all those microbes in our guts, we wouldn't be able to digest anything, right? It's like, so some of them are helpful, some of them are benign, and some of them are harmful. Now, it seems to me that the idea of community might be a better way to describe that than immunity. And if we you know, were to think about how we lived in the world, not like we have this immune system that's fighting, but we have this commune system that helps us like negotiate how it is that as living organisms, we live with other organisms, we might have a really different way of thinking about not just health and illness, but also about like what it means to be a human in relationship to other humans, right? What it means to be an organism in relationship to other organisms. You know, we might have a really different value system. You know, it, you know, one of the things about Western medicine, scientific medicine is it has played a really large part in justifying a whole set of assumptions about economics, politics, like public health, right? You know, that, uh, that are based on certain assumptions that may not even be correct. I mean, maybe empirically false. So, you know, when I say like medicine's not uh, um, a pure science, I mean, and, and medicine knows this. I mean, like I, in my book, I say, you know, when I just had I recently, a couple of years ago, I had a, a hip replacement and I literally had to sign a document saying, I understand that medicine is not an exact science. Like that was part of the their liability statement, right? Like I had to acknowledge, I'm like, okay, I acknowledge that. Do you acknowledge that? Do you know that? No, you don't seem to understand that. Uh, so medicine, you know, at best applies certain kinds of scientific uh, results that emerge from laboratory experiments, usually on experimental animals, you know, and then extrapolates them. And, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that the effects are not wonderful. Like, 
I, you know, I certainly would be dead. So I am not in, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be a model for like the success, but, but it's limited. I mean, there are many more things that we can do. So what you were just, you know, describing, uh, you know, in terms of, I mean, I, you know, I mean, there's lots of ways of talking. What you're saying is actually like the gravitation force is an exact science because that is yes universal uh, truth uh, in this sense. Go on. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Physics, chemistry, uh, you know, to some extent biology, although it's a little bit, you know, and each one of those in the history of, of science, each one, you know, seems to be a little less exact, you know, a little less, you know, uh, and medicine, but medicine isn't even one of those. Medicine relies on those, but it is itself not subject to the criteria of falsification that, you know, that constitute, philosophically constitute a pure science, for sure. Definitely not. Um, it's good you talked about, you know, all these experiments, which is, I there's a, a module which I built in impact evaluation online course, where I've, of course, talked about randomized control trials. When you were mm-hmm. talking about, you know, various experiments. Looking forward, I wanted to also come out to one of your papers, which you have written, uh, The Placebo Disavowed or Unwilling, The Biomedical Imagination. It's a very uh, articulate and eloquent uh, written with a lot of artistic flair, like I said. I, read, <laughs> I really love the way you write, you know. <laughs> Putting up uh, so where you talked about exploring the scholastic, uh, the the topic of efficacy of interventions. You know, example placebo, which we talked about. That's a key key concept for understanding clinical trials and uh, attitude towards alternative medication. The reason why I'm bringing it is because I did a bit of research, and according to President's research, the global complementary and alternative medic medicine uh, market was valued at about ninety two point six five billion. No, that's oh, a substantial yeah. size. Yeah. And that was in 2021. And it's expected right. to reach around uh, 404, 111.4 billion dollars by 2030 with a CGR growth of about 18% from 2021 to 2030. And this is where actually you are really focusing on right now. Now, it's good that America, you know, very multidimensional, they're very multifaceted, adventurous, and usually they have a very positive attitude towards alternative medication. How do you, how would you define or how would you see uh, this particular segment, alternative healthcare developing in the US and globally and whatever differences you feel, uh, key differences between this complementary and uh, alternative medication? So, um, so it's important to understand that when certain kinds of therapeutic practices get characterized as either alternative or complementary medical uh, practices, we have to understand that they're being judged against what scientific medicine takes to be true. So they're already being framed as being somehow less rigorous less uh, trustworthy, less deterministic. That's really what it is. You know, more questionable because it's still, you know, just the framing, it's alternative medicine, it's complementary medicine. That means that medicine is still the central term. And this is this thing that's on the edge of it. Now, what I think that you say, which is, is very interesting, is of course, okay, 
But then if that's the case, why are people willing to spend so much out of pocket? And then this is the key thing in, in you know, Western cultures uh, where there is medical insurance. Medical insurance pays for practices that are defined as bioscientifically credible, right? They don't pay for this other stuff. So this other stuff people are paying for by themselves. That suggests that there is some desire that people have that is not being uh, met by the market in bioscientific medicine, that people understand that and they are looking for something else. So there are lots of other kinds of therapeutic practices that are uh, efficacious, you know, in different kinds of contexts, but they may not be subjectable to double blind testing, which is the randomized control testing. Um, and in part, because we, do, we don't actually acknowledge like really what's going on in randomized control testing, right? Because the whole thing about the placebo, right? Is the reason that medications or techniques or whatever, you know, have to be tested against a placebo is not because the placebo doesn't work. It's because the placebo does work, right? And that in order for a treatment or a drug or, you know, whatever to be considered to be effective, it has to work better than the placebo. So one of the things that's like staring us right in the face is, oh wait, the placebos work. Well, why? Like. That's not, no, no medicine did not ask, why does the placebo work? It's just like, oh, well, yeah, we know the placebo works, but we want something that works better than the placebo. And I'm like, well, maybe we could explore why the placebo works and then try to enhance and support the way the placebo functions, you know, but the thing about that is that you can't really quantify it and you can't really sell it in the ways that you can sell medical products. Like what you want, if you're a pharmaceutical company, is you want a, a medication that has produces reliable results that you can sell to a large market on a regular basis so that you can profit from it. Something that is, you might have to, you know, work on the relationship between the practitioner and the person coming for help, that it might be multifactorial. It might not just be like, I'm going to give you a drug and that it might be like, oh, you know what? You need to change your diet. You need to like breathe some fresh air, get a little exercise, you know? Oh, well, you know, maybe, you know, you could get a massage or, or, you know, maybe you could try, hey, this kind of herbal remedy, it seems to have worked for, you know, maybe you could try that, right? All of these things uh, are less deterministic, right? Require more, uh, they're less capital intensive, but they're more human experience contact, right? So like acupuncture, for example, you know, I mean, what do you need to do acupuncture? You need a table and you need some needle and you need a person who knows where to stick the needle. You know, it's not like, 
uh, I, I'm going to do an MRI scan machine, co you know, for you know six million dollars that then I got to you know put all these people through in order to to justify and make profit off of you know. So we have to understand that you know when things are described as being alternative or complementary, they're they're also being understood to be economically competitive with the medical industrial complex, right? And but that medicine has recognized that they are filling a market niche that it's not doing, and that you know, and some physicians do recognize the efficacy of different kinds of treatments. So that's why, like what I was saying before, I cancer. Like nobody knows, cancer is not one thing. Like, I, you know, I hate when people just say cancer because it's actually what we call cancer is a complex, multifaceted number of metastatic conditions that they're not, you know, very, very, you know, like breast cancer is not pancreatic cancer, is not liver cancer, is not, you know, glioblastoma. It's like, these are all very different things. So, but anyway, just to put it that way, Nobody knows what cancer is, why it occurs. There's no, you know, what they, what can they do for cancer in biocidemic medicine? They can poison you. They can burn you. They can give you chemotherapy. They can give you radiation or they can cut you. They can do surgery. That's what they do. Poison slash burn, poison slash burn. Is that all that can be done? No. Do they know that there are people who have like spontaneous remissions from cancer? Yes. Are they interested in why those things occur? No. Why? Because they can't sell you an oncology treatment. <laughs> they can't sell you radiation therapy. They can't. So, you know, the economics of medicine, you know, creates, you know, circumstances that, you know, produce these kind of bifurcations. But then, as you were saying before, then there's this thing called wellness. Like, I mean, that kind of drives me nuts, the wellness, because I'm like, what's wellness? Like, well, in English, well, well, it can mean a hole in the ground to get water from. But I mean, but well is really an adverb. It means the quality that you do something, right? So then you make an adverb into a noun, uh, like, well, what the hell is, what's that? You know, it's this noun of substance that's about the quality of like how you live and then I'm going to sell you some stuff that's going to like help you be weller than you were before. I'm like, to me, it's not the techniques per se. Like many of the things that people are selling actually are interesting. And like, I like to say there, there are many, many things that can lead you to the door, but you have to walk through it. Right. And, you know, so there's nothing wrong with them. Oh, sorry. Just to, just to add, I, I think the one that things between complementary and alternative medication, uh, it cannot be standardized. That's one of the. Uh, yes. It, the, it could be like, for example, you took the example of acupuncture. Hey, the expertise of the person delivering also matters a lot. Uh, so yes. there could be variations, which maybe in medication you do not have. And right. there was also not much scientific evidence in the way they have either conducted randomized control trials to see because it takes like alternative therapies, maybe takes a much longer time. Uh, effects is not going to be very straight or instantaneous as with the the, the biomedical. Am I correct? Would that be? No, absolutely. But also like, just to stay on the acupuncture, you can't do a randomized uh, control trial because the person who's doing 
put needling you. So the way that they do the test when they try to do this is they make these fake needles that are retractable. So then when they, instead of they put it on you and it feel, you feel something on your skin and maybe you think that something has gone in, but the needle retracts and it just sticks, right? But so maybe the person receiving the treatment doesn't know the difference, but the practitioner knows the difference. Yeah, no, no, true. Right. It could be like, for example, homeopathy, or Ayurveda, or other things. Homeo right. No, absolutely. Homeopathy is another one that that's really, if you talk to trained, Western trained, you know, bioscientifically trained doctors, they hate homeopathy. That's like witchcraft, you know, it's like, and I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of, I mean, you know, like homeopathy is not my go-to, but I do know that when if i sprain something or if i get a bruise or like i had a hip replacement i took a lot of arnica and it really helped like uh, i don't know why it's like but and i don't need a big theory you know i'm like and it was cheap it's like little you know so you know so that's you know you know what we always have to remember about medicine you know and and this is a foucault thing and this is a modern thought thing and you know, medicine is what we call a human science. It's not a, it's not a pure science. It's not a hard science. It's a human science. And as a human science, medicine, I think, is the most important human science in a certain way because not only does it treat us as living biological organisms and have the capacity to affect us on a cellular, molecular, and subatomic basis, but it also gives us frameworks for how we think about what it means to be human, right? And that I think is really underestimated in the, the effects of, uh, of medical care. And that I think, you know, the way the assumptions about what it means to be human that, that biomedicine incorporates are what, what I would call highly individualistic. It's like, it's all in you, it's all about you. Increasingly, they know they know a little bit. Okay, your environment does affect you. They know. Okay, what you eat or drink affects you. You know. Now we have epigenetics. You know, they know that you know that there's like oh, actually, you know, at a cell, a cellular level and genomic level, you know, that these these effects endure across generations. We we you know this is actually in their terms. These are proven things to be true, right? But still, like the focus is very much on one person as if, you know what? There is no such thing as one person. There's no such thing as an individual. There's only an individual in a context, right? Like it's like my, one of my favorite psychoanalysts, Winnicott says, there's no such thing as a baby. There's only a baby and an adult. By itself is a dead being, right? We're all that baby. We were that baby. We still are that baby, right? And so, so to me, that's really like, if I'm gonna say, what's the difference between like alternative and complementary and bioscientific medicine, is like alternative and complementary actually open the frame and they allow us to think, oh, wait, there are all of these other factors that we actually live in a really complicated world and that we live in the world and the world lives in us. And maybe in order to live better to live otherwise it's not just about changing what's inside our skin it might be about changing 
how we live in the world. Right. Talk about alternative. Is this the subset of contemporary? Because that's a smaller set. For example, regressive hypnosis. Where will you categorize it as a healing practice? If you, if you, let's say, go into, would that come under alternative or? Well, I see. Personally, I wouldn't. I don't like either of those categories. Both of those categories keep medicine. Whenever you have to use the word medicine to describe something else that something else is less than medicine complimentary doesn't matter to me because that's what they actually are ways of always calling us back to okay what's real is medicine these other things are like you know marginal uh hypnosis is a really interesting you know phenomenon uh i mean i've worked on the the history of hypnosis that goes back actually to the end of the 18th century, this guy named Mesmer uh, in France who had the, I mean, he was like a trip. I mean, he was like a shaman, kind of like, he had these like experiences. He His idea was that, that there was this thing uh, that was a kind of like uh, magnetic energy that, you know, flows and that what illnesses, it's very much like, uh, you know, uh, uh, East Asian medicine, you know, it's like very much an energetic and that illness is a blockage and, and what, you know, healing, what enhances healing is helping the flow. And he had this whole setup where people like would like channel the energy and they would be in this room and they would all be lying on these like, you know, couches and they would be playing music and they would have all like experience and and people said that they you know they testified they got better they you know like and this actually was the first like in terms of randomized controlled trials this was the invention of the random it wasn't called the randomized it was this is the invention of what we call blind testing and the way they did it was literally by inventing a blindfold what they did is they took people and they put a blindfold on them so they couldn't see. And then they said, okay, now we're channeling the energy, you know, and and the people go, okay, I feel it. And then they're like, okay, now we're channeling the energy, but they weren't. And then the people are like, oh no, I feel that here, here. And they're and then uh so they would be like doing this, you know, kind of testing. And basically what they proved in that was that according to them, and this was a very famous trial, the most famous scientists of the 18th century, you know, Lavoisier, who's, you know, the founder of chemistry, you know, Benjamin Franklin, you know, he actually wrote the report, Guillotine, you know, the one who made the like cut off your head thing, he was on it, like all these people. And, and what they said is, oh no, um, animal magnetism, which is what, you know, uh, Mesmer called it. They said animal magnetism doesn't exist and it can't be producing the um, effects that it claims to. They said the effects that they acknowledged that there were effects. They said there are effects, but they said those effects are, are produced by the imagination. And I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. So you have disqualified certain kinds of treatments because they're not deterministic. There's not a material cause, animal magnetism. You're saying that doesn't exist. However, you acknowledge that these changes occurred and that they were beneficial. 
but you're saying that they're the results of the imagination. So why then aren't you interested in how the imagination works to help people change on an organismic level? You would think that would be an interesting question. No, because what they were interested in defining was what was really medicine. Like they, it was all about determinant causality and it was defined, you know, derived from chemistry. Lavoisier, he invented analytic chemistry. That's his thing. And that's where medicine, that's the beginning of modern medicine. That, and that practice that Mesmer did then got picked up by alternative people in the 19th century. And that's where hypnotism comes from. Hypnotism was like derived, you know, from this earlier practice. And, you know, and, and it was very popular and lots of, I mean, Freud tried practicing hypnotism. There were different schools of hypnotism in the 19th century. A lot of, this, a lot of people have sort of, you know, written books. Brian Briss is a very famous guy who keeps talking about it as visualization also. For example, whenever I'm talking about yeah. I'm trying to sort of think that I'm there and representing the whole world and the audiences with me. So that's how I keep using this word, uh, you know, whenever I'm teaching us. Do you think uh, this sort of association as a community, which I think sometimes when I'm even interviewing people or dis in a discussion, if I'm sort of talking for my audience or, you know, for the set which I define. You think you think it sort of helps in connection uh, at, a, at a conscious at a very higher level? Uh, this is a very different question. It's sort of a damage. What yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. So I would say, I mean, I'm I'm a very big fan of what I think of as a field effect, which is a physics concept, like a physics, you know. Um, but and also, uh, so I do. I mean, I absolutely believe. Yes, we collectively, uh, energetically affect each other all the time, and we and and it's like one of these things, and we absolutely know that, like. We have that in sense all the time. You know, we know if you're in a crowd or, you know, or like I like the example I like to use is like I do yoga, right? So the difference between doing yoga by yourself and doing yoga in a class, it, it makes a huge difference if you're doing with other people or you're doing it by yourself. You could do the same asanas, right? And have a, you know, a really different experience. So to me, that also then flips around and says, well, what? we think of as the self might be too limited like that and this is you know from you know many kinds of spiritual traditions you know around the world you know like in buddhism is like the easiest example you know where like the idea of no self like what does that mean well it's like self exists you know self in my world is an effect of the way that we use language, that language gives us a container within which we can refer to ourselves as an I. I say I, me, you know, that's a, but, but that's a, a form. Language is a form within which we um, express ourselves, in, in which we, we clothe ourselves, right? But, but what that form exists within is a much larger field, right? And the point of, you know, all of these different kinds of practices of meditation or ascetics or whatever is to be able to cultivate the experiences of letting go of that form and to being open to the capacity to, uh, to open to the capacity to utilize the resource that we're part of 
that that we don't always acknowledge when we're in our smaller self, right? And that that you know, and that's why I like to think of you know the what you know the way that we are in the world is like how do you how do you participate in the world? Because I like the idea that we're parts. We're just part. We're part. We're particular. We're particulate. We're part, but we participate. And when I, and but when we understand that we participate, it's like, what do you participate? We participate in something that's much bigger than us all the time. And but we don't always value that, right? We don't always pay attention. We don't appreciate it, but it's always there. Let's say uh, I think we had a long conversation. Just to yeah. wrap it up, uh, would you like to speak something about your recent book? Any anything you'd like to share before we come to the last question? I have actually <laughs> before that. Uh, well, the the my book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know is really, I mean, many of the things that I've talked about are great too too great a length. Uh, uh, you know, are touched on in different ways. But what I'm really, you know, trying to suggest to all of us is that uh, we're more than we know. And that we have capacities that often are not realized when we rely on medicine to tell us what's happening to us. Which doesn't mean that we shouldn't appreciate or utilize those resources if they're available and if we can afford them. They can be very helpful, but what we might also want to remember is that medicine's ways of making sense of the world are are just one framework, and that if we open ourselves to other kinds of ways of understanding how we exist as living organisms, living among other organisms, that there might be a lot more resources available to us to live lives that are more flourishing. You know more that might enhance our well-being on a daily basis. Thanks, Lord. I really <laughs> it was a it was a very long, very lengthy, but it was a very a very <laughs> talked in depth about a lot of topics, and I actually learned a lot today. And but, but you you know you spoke about uh, I I forgot during the time of the discussion I was talking about women's equality, especially in America when you look at so I think it's it was in 1862 when Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery and. Mm-hmm. Ask you that uh, how what sort of repercussions it also had on women because it brought in about a sea change. It was a paradigm change. Uh, do you think that had a huge effect also in uplifting uh, women? Oh my god! <laughs> Just I thought you know when I was talking. <laughs> I like I, you wait you. We've already gone on too long, and then you asked yeah. me that question. I thought I'll just ask you. I'm just going to say that's like super complicated. And the and it's especially complicated because of the relationship between race and gender in this period of time, and that the way that slavery was defined in the United States was in terms of the condition of the mother. If the mother was a slave, then the child, even if the father was a slave owner, the child was still considered to be a slave. So the legacy of that particular dynamic and the way in which you know uh, enslaved women were subject to sexual violence uh, really complicates our understanding of like what it was, you know, what what it meant to be a woman. Certainly, 
what we think of as feminism in the U.S. Many women's rights advocates were also abolitionists and were in favor of of ending slavery. But there was a very complicated relationship between white women and black women, you know, in the period. And then, of course, with immigration and, uh, you know, between Latino women and Asian women. I mean, super complicated. <laughs> so many things in life i really appreciate it. it's it's a lot of talents in different things you know it, it, it you have covered so many spaces i would say if you look at various spaces universally where you have spoken about or what you have done in life so that's amazing you know that's that, that's tremendous and that's also great is that you get an opportunity in the us also with their such a sound education system the depth which they give you the opportunities which they give you and with this i come to the last question the aha question which is always from the road is do speak about any any uh, you could share one or multiple instances which brings a smile back in your life you know which when you reflect back and you really feel happy um Well, I have many, many of those. Uh, I feel very blessed because, as you say, I'm very privileged. Of, um, I would say on the west coast of the United States, there are these amazing forests uh, in the mountains that are covered with evergreen trees. And I... was once coming back from a tai chi workshop and i stopped my car and got out of the car and walked into the forest and there was a a wonderful little stream that was running by and i took off my shoes and i stood in the middle of the stream and i just felt the forest breathing and I don't know what it was or how it was but in that moment I really viscerally understood I am way more than I know and I have no idea what that is. Yeah nature I think it's just the most amazing thing and one of the greatest beauties of the US is of course it's unbeautiful just unimaginable nature. Yes. And usually I always sometimes go uh, you know go to the ground and put my hands in the soil just to get a feed. Absolutely. Well, I'm a gardener, so I have a garden and I I mean just digging, I mean growing things. Yeah, I mean, you know, being in the yes, all I mean it's like oh my god, we're so lucky to be alive. I mean, you know, like you know, why waste it? <laughs> like really I mean, uh, we've evolved over, uh, you know, billions <laughs> of years, and we've actually stayed with nature much more. I, I think you could say two thousand or three thousand years will be less than maybe five percent of the time which have evolved over a period of time. If you look at the artists. oh, it's nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. So, thanks a lot. It's great to meet you, and I really appreciate you choosing the middle road. You know, to, oh, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I really appreciate the work. I mean, your research papers are really fantastic. I just oh, love. Thank them. you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I, uh, it's you know uh, nice that people elsewhere also resonate with the stuff that I do. Um, you know, the problem of being an academic is too often it's we work on things that you know are in our little world zone and. um so it's really nice that that you know you've resonated with it in some ways so i really appreciate that thank you it was great speaking with you